I'm going to read a psalm. Actually, I'm going to read a song that um, people of Israel sang in 1 Chronicles 16. It says, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name. Father, this morning we come to you just doing that, giving you the glory that is due your name. Father, we know from your word that we were created for your glory. And we've seen throughout the book of Acts that you have uh, redeemed us and called us to be your people so that we may be reflections of your glory, image bearers of the one true God. So I pray this morning, Lord, that you would forgive us, uh, forgive us of all the times in the past six to seven days that we have given glory to something apart from you. And Lord, I pray for your grace and for your mercy that this morning as we read your word, as we pray your word, as we preach your word, that you would in your kindness, redirect our gaze back to you, that once again, we'd be able to behold your glory and live the remainder of this week unto your glory. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Hey, if you have your Bibles, open up with me to Acts chapter 27. Acts 27. And as you can probably feel from the room, you're thinking, how on earth are we going to be able to fit first through fifth graders in this room? And um, that's a really good question. Um, so they may be sitting up here on the floor in the splash zone. We'll, we'll see what God has in store for us. But Acts chapter 27. You know, I saw a meme this week um, that really put into words a lot of feelings and, and emotions that, that I carry, um, and it, as memes tend to do, and it, it simply reads this. The meme said, do people who run marathons know that they don't have to? <laughs> yeah. Gosh, isn't that good? As someone who's married to a marathon runner, as, as much as she would want me to ask her how, like how do you do that? Like how do you accomplish a feat like that? What I tend to ask her is, is why? You know, why, like why? Like why would you do that? Um, and usually for Annie, the answer is pretty simple. Um, and for most marathon runners, it, the answer sim- tends to be the same. It's I like to run. It's that I enjoy the run, you know. And when she says that, like I hear her. Um, but it doesn't compute, you know, it's like, you know, so here's the truth, and you, you may not believe it, I actually run too, um, I do not run marathons, um, but what incentivizes my run is totally different when incentivizes any run, what, it, what incentivizes my run is just the fact that I'm going to get it done, like I, I run, I begin the run in order to complete the run, it's just about getting it done, like completing the run, so in fact, I'm so destination oriented, like completing, like outcome driven, that I will create little micro outcomes throughout my run to propel me towards the finish line. So am I the only one? You know, you run and you see a, a light pole and it's like, just make it to the light pole. And you get to that light pole and you go, okay, just make it to the next one. And I get to the next one, it's like, just make it to the house on the corner and make it to the house on the corner. And it's like, okay, just make it to the driveway. And then I'm done. Done, you know, completed. Like I, I, I managed this run and I didn't even need a sticker that says, you know, 26.2 or anything to r- rub it in all you peasants' faces. So... Run for me is incentivized by an outcome, by a destination. But for Annie, you all, it's totally different. And she, she gave me total permission to pick at her, as I do here, as I do on Saturdays, on Fridays, about her running. But she comes in from her runs, and, and she, she can't tell me how far she ran. She can't even tell me how long she ran. She's just out running. And it's usually an hour or more, and she comes home, and she begins to tell me about 
all the rainbows and the unicorns and the four-leaf clovers that she saw and her ability to solve world peace and how God has revealed his deep love for her in this run. Like, like for her, it's just like this magical experience. And she can tell me all the details of her run. These flowers that are blooming in the neighborhood now, all the neighbors that she saw and the types of dogs that they have. Like it's, it's crazy. Like she can pay attention to all of these details throughout her run. She is just someone who enjoys the run, like somebody who just enjoys the journey. So let me kind of tie this in from, for where we're headed. Last week I told you that I really believe that people, that the world is asking if what we believe as Christians is real. Like, like, is God powerful? Like, is he love? Can he save people, transform people, change people? Remember this, repair people's marriages, maybe break a particular addiction, redeem a child that has wandered from the faith. Like, can God do all those things? And I mentioned last week that the answer for us as believers in Christ should emphatically be yes. Because, as Paul showed us last week in our text, we have testimonies. We have stories of who we were before Christ, who, who, who Christ is when we encountered him and who we are after him. We all have outcomes or destinations in our life of faith that can point to the glory of God, right? And the book of Acts is about that. That's all Acts has been doing. It's been witnessing to the glory of God through changing people's lives through the preaching of the gospel. But it really left me asking the, the question, like, what if he, like, what if he doesn't? Like, what if you have lived your life in such a way that the outcome or destination that you've hoped for, prayed for, longed for, worked for, hasn't come to fruition? Like, you haven't gotten an outcome or a destination that you long for. Maybe, maybe that child that you've been praying for for years is still far from Christ. Maybe your marriage is still limping. Maybe that addiction is still wielding its power in your life. Like, what then? And church, if that's you this morning, and I would imagine it's most of us, Here's what I want to say to you this morning. Oftentimes, a lot of times, God will use you as a witness for his glory when you get that outcome. But also often, most of the time, God still wants to use you while you walk the journey when you haven't received that outcome. Right? Like, a lot of times, God is most glorified in runs like mine, where it's an outcome that you get. A lot of times, most of the time, God is glorified in runs like Amy's where it's just about the journey, that how you move through this course of life, regardless of the outcomes you receive, does it point to and reflect to his worth and his value. Oftentimes, a lot of, God, a lot of times, God will use you as a witness in the outcome. A lot of times, he'll use you in the journey. But here's the truth. Regardless, he will be glorified. Regardless, it's all about pointing to his glory. So whether you are achieving the destination that you hope for, or whether you're still in the middle of the muck and of the journey, as we're going to see Paul is in Acts chapter 27, I just want to tell you God wishes to use you in the midst of this to bring you glory. I know that kid. Okay. Church, as we look to the final chapters, of, to two chapters of Acts today, we're going to read about a, a chapter and a half. You would think that it's going to be all about the outcome. Since Acts chapter 19, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, has been talking about Rome, talking about what awaits Paul in Rome. He has been building in us, his audience, a type of anticipation about what's going to happen in Rome. But what blows my mind in this text is he barely tells us anything about Rome. Like we actually don't see a lot of Paul's life in Rome, or we learn what happened to Paul in the city of Rome. Instead, what Luke does is he takes vivid detail of his journey from Rome. 
And what he's going to show us about his journey is that the journey was intended by the providence of God for Paul to use his life, his journey, to point to the glory of God. So that's what we're going to be about today. We're going to look at the journey. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read our text in its entirety. So that's Acts chapter 27 all the way to Acts chapter 28, verse 16, okay? That's going to take us anywhere between 8 and 10 minutes. So if you have a Bible, please follow along as we read this, and then we'll unpack what it means to witness to the glory of God in the midst of the journey. Acts chapter 27, verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adrimatium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go see his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea, from there we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. When we'd sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria and sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Do you hear the detail that Luke is weaving into this journey? Keep going. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo of the ship, but also of our own lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running, uh, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. That's the dinghy. That's the little you know, lifeboat. Then fearing that they would run aground on Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, we all, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul, for you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further on, they took another sounding and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered down the dinghy, the ship's boat, into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the rope to the ship's boat and let it go. Verse 33, 
as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. We have said these things. He took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of them all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were all, in all 276 persons on the ship. When they'd eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. They cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach, but striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck, stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ships. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. You would think at this point, church, that uh, we're going to put a bow on this story, and all lived happily ever after. But look at verse, uh, chapter 28 with me. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, as it all began to rain and it was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man's a murderer. Though he's escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. And they're waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had reached, waited a long time, they saw no misfortune come to him. They changed their minds and said, this man's a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, he healed him. When this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. When we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. After one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Petuli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. When we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who guarded him. All right, that's our text for today. Everybody awake? What a journey, right? Luke went into extravagant detail to communicate this journey. And what I want us to see this morning is that the journey was God's providence, that God had laid out this journey for Paul, and Paul's purpose in the midst of the journey, just as his purpose was in the destination, was to bring glory to God, was to witness to the glory of God. So here's the first thing I want to say for us this morning. Before we talk about what it means to witness for the glory of God, we need to understand what the glory of God is. What is the glory of God? So in the Hebrew text, the word glory is the word kabod. Okay? Kabod means an immense weight. That got, that got me, okay. An immense weight or, or value. It's an immeasurable sense of value or worth. It's a magnificence. 
God's glory is immense in its value and its worth. That's the glory of God. Paul would later write in Corinthians that, that God's glory is so valuable, church, that he is so worthy of all of your life, that whether you eat or whether you drink, that we should do it all for the glory of God. What Paul's communicating in that statement is that all of your life should be revolving around the thing that is most worthy and most valuable, which is the glory of God. That everything that we do, whether we walk on a journey or we reach a particular outcome, that everything that we do should revolve around his worth, around his value. And there's a couple of truths about God's glory that I want to quickly share that I think will help us understand this concept, okay? The first is that God loves to reveal his glory. You'll know that. He loves to put his worth, his value on display. Psalm 19.1 says that the creation, the heavens, declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. When you get out on the boat or when you get out in nature, when you look back here, what that should do is reflect the point that God is a creator, and he is worthy, he is valuable. Look at what he has done. His creation reflects his glory, but so do all of his deeds, all of his work, not just his work of, of creation, but, but your story. Right, your testimony, like we talked about last week, when you encounter Jesus and that change that it makes in your life, that in and of itself reflects his worth, reflects his value, reflects his glory. The people of Israel in Exodus 15 said this, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in deeds, doing wonders? God loves to reveal his glory. And the primary way that God reveals his glory is in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. This is what scripture teaches. John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father. Hebrews 1, 3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, that when you see and you behold Jesus, what you see is the worth and the value of God the father. God loves to reveal his glory. Second thing I want you to know is that seeing and beholding and living in a way that revolves around his glory is your highest good. It's what we were created for. It's what you will find most satisfaction in. Every one of us wants to be satisfied. And yet every one of us tries to acquire more, possess more, do more in order to fill that level of satisfaction. We try to give the worth and value that belongs to God and God alone to other things. And we're never going to be satisfied in that. Our highest good, our greatest satisfaction is when we live revolving around the glory and the worth of God. God says in Isaiah 43 verse 7, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Did you hear that? You were created for the glory of God. Finally, let me tell you one more. Because he is so glorious, and because it is for our good to see and to live and revolve around his glory, church, he is jealous for his glory. He will share his glory with no other. So when we give our lives to things that are lesser in worth and in value, he's jealous towards that. He does not like that. Let me give you an example. Everybody know the story of the Exodus, right? The story of the people of Israel who were enslaved in Egypt, and God came and, and redeemed them and set them free from their slavery. Most of the time, we think that God did that just because he loved the people of Israel. Now, is that wrong? No. God loves the people of Israel. God wanted them to be set free. Why? So they could come worship me. I want them to have freedom so they can revolve around me. So they can worship me, because that's for their highest good. That's their glory. His love did redeem his people, but it was also his jealousy. How do I know that? Because every plague that God gave the people of Egypt was a divine confrontation. 
It was a cosmic conflict between God, who was worthy of all glory, and lesser G gods that the Egyptians worshipped. Every plague, before God gave these plagues, he would say this. Exodus 7, 17. Thus says the Lord, Pharaoh, by this plague, you shall know that I and I alone am the Lord. That's, he gave that statement before every plague. First plague, God turned the Nile River into blood. Church, that's not just because God loves his people. It's because he is jealous for his own glory. The Egyptians worshipped the Nile River. In fact, they had two mythological deities that would protect and guard the river. You had Apis, the goddess of the Nile, and Kunum, the guardian of the Nile. When God broke through those little G-gods' defenses and turned that water into blood, he was saying, there is no God like me. I am other. I am separate. These are nothing compared to my worth, my glory, my value. Same thing when he put the frogs. That's plague number two. Sent frogs over, all over the land of Egypt. That's judgment against this god, god named Hecate which was a frog-headed goddess of birth and fertility. When God put frogs over that land, he was demonstrating to the people of Israel and to the people of Egypt and to all the nations around them, there is nobody like me. I am other, I am infinitely of worth and of value, and your greatest good is to stop acknowledging these little g-gods and put your attention on me. You following me? God is jealous for his glory. He'll share it with no other. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for Paul? It means that whether Paul has reached the destination of Rome or whether Paul is just going through this crazy journey on the way to Rome, his purpose was to point people to the glory of God. His purpose was to let everybody know in his life and those on that ship, 275 other people, he and he alone is worthy of our lives. And church, that's the point for your journey too. You think some of the difficulties that you're walking through, you, you question why. Why would God allow those things? Why would he permit in his providence the things that you have to put up with? Because it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to you, for you to point to the glory of God. That's what Paul did. So let me take 20 minutes or so and give you two, re two ways that Paul did this, okay? The first is that Paul witnessed to the power of God. God is so glorious and he is so powerful that Paul, in the way that he walked through this journey, witnessed to the power of God. Turn back with me to verse 13. Acts chapter 27, verse 13. Paul had already told them, hey guys, I don't think this journey is going to end well. And Paul wasn't giving a prophetic statement. Paul was a seasoned sailor. If you look at Corinthians, he had been adrift at sea already. He had gone through a few shipwrecks. He saw what was coming, coming for them. And he says, I don't think we should do this. But they didn't listen to him. Verse 13, now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they're thinking, ha, we were right, Paul, you were wrong. It's happening. We're finally getting to do what we do. Look at verse 14. But soon a temptuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. That Greek word temptuous wind is typhoonikos. What's that sound like? Typhoon. Like a typhoon-like wind. I was stuck on 144 with all four of my kids a week and a half ago when that hail started pounding. Anybody was stuck in that? Everybody's houses still getting adjusted, you know, roofs getting put on. That's terrifying. I was, I was deeply aware, I am not in control here. Whatever is happening around me, we are at the mercy of God. I am not in control here. These guys were in wind and storm like that for 14 days on a boat. Could you imagine the fear that they, that they experienced? I mean, total panic. And in verse 14, we read that the wind, that typhoon-like wind, had a name. It was the name Northeaster. And notice that it struck down. All right, this is where it gets really interesting. I'm, I'm starting to nerd out a little bit. 
The Greek word for northeaster is, is the word Eurocliden. And that word Eurocliden is a proper name. It's a title. It's a name. Because Eurocliden is a Greek demigod. Eurocliden is the god of the wind, who was created by Poseidon, the god of the, the waves, to wreak havoc on sailors. The belief that these Greeks, these 273 people in this boat, the belief was that Eurocliden would sit up high on Mount Ida, which was on the Isle of Crete, believed to be the birthplace of Zeus. And when Eurocliden saw these boats coming, he would strike down off this mountain to disrupt and bring panic to these sailors. Eurocliden. So picture that people, church. 276 people on this boat. We only know of three that were believers. Paul, Aristarchus, his disciple from Thessalonica, and Luke. So 273 people are being torn apart by this wind for 14 days, believing that it is at the fate and at the mercy of this Greek god named Eurocliden. They continue on with difficulty. They start jettisoning all the cargo. And look at verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of being saved was at last abandoned. 273 people on that boat going, Eurocliden's too great for us. There's nothing that we can do. Look what Paul does. Verse 21. First he says, hey, told you. And then he says, but don't worry. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And he told me, do not be afraid, Paul, for you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God. Paul stands up and goes, take your eyes off Eurocliden. Put them on the God whom I worship. It was an opportunity to point people to the, to the glory of God. But his audience is dense. In fact, hard-hearted. And as they approach the shore where they need to run aground to be saved, look at verse 29. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down the four anchors in the stern. And what did they do? Began praying for day to come. Who do you suppose they're praying to? Yeah, who knows? Anybody that'll listen, right? 14 days being drug around thinking you're about to be shipwrecked on these rocks, thinking you're about to die. They're just out there praying. But what's crazy is it doesn't matter who they're praying to because they had no faith. Look at verse 30. They start praying and immediately start seeking ways to escape from the ship. They're not going to wait for some God to deliver them. They're like to take matters into their own hands, which in and of itself is a form of worship I don't have time to go into, okay? But once again, Paul, aware of his purpose, Aware that every step of his journey is an opportunity to point people to the glory of God, does what? Verse 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food. Saying, y'all, for 14 days you've continued with suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food. For it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. He offers encouragement. And then what does he do? Verse 35. And giving thanks to God in the presence of them all, he broke bread and ate it. He testifies. These guys are frantic, 273 people ready to jump overboard, ready to do anything to save themselves. And this guy named Paul just starts calmly breaking bread and encouraging them, going, God's got this. Once again, testifying to the glory of God. And I said it earlier when you were reading, you would think Paul's been so faithful. He's going through all this difficulty, and you would think at the end of chapter 27, everybody's going to live happily ever after. And then he gets to land. This blows my mind because I am, I am terrified of snakes, okay? Blows my mind what happens to him. He's just trying to be a team player. 
collecting some firewood, puts the firewood down on the fire, and a poisonous viper bites him. Are you kidding me? Like, can you put yourself in his position for a second? 14 days being drug around, and he knows what awaits him in Rome. Let me tell you, I'm going to tell you next week, it's not good. Good things don't await him. This guy has walked, his journey is difficulty after difficulty after difficulty. Now, let's be honest for a second. How many of you, if you put yourself in Paul's shoes, you begin to think about your journey. You begin to think about all the valleys, all the difficulties. How many of you would not start questioning the goodness of God? You get to land. Finally saved, finally believing God's delivered you, and you're bitten by a viper? I know that I would. Just full transparency, I'd begin to question, God, do you even care? What on earth have I done to you? Do you see? Do you know? Do you love? Are you going to do anything about this? But, but Paul didn't. Even though his journey was rife with difficulty after difficulty, all he did was continue to point people to the glory of God. And look at the response of the native people. I love this so much. When the native people in verse 4 saw that the creature was hanging from Paul's hand, they said to one another, no doubt, this man's a murderer. Like if you're a football fan in the room, this is like a, a, a proverbial ball don't lie, right? Because this, this guy's like, they're looking at him going, you, you, you were saved from the sea, but now, now justice, that's, that's the word they use in verse 4 and verse 5, justice wouldn't allow you to live. You might have escaped the sea, but obviously you deserve to die. And church, I don't know about you, in verse 4, that word justice is capitalized. Why is it capitalized? You guessed it. Just like Euroclidon, that name justice is a Greek god. It's a divinity. The Greek word here is DK, who is the goddess of justice and of fair judgment. These people on Maltese, on the island of Maltese, worshipped these pagan little g gods. They saw this viper back Paul and go, Obviously, DK has her way again. And what's Paul do? Shakes it, shakes it off into the fire. Once again, pointing, no, my God is more powerful. My God is the only one that is glorious, the only one worthy of worship, the only one worthy of our lives. Church, every step of Paul's journey was intended by the providence of God. And Paul, Luke, the author, goes into this great detail to point us to this fact that the journey is for his glory. Your journey is for his glory. God wants you to live for his glory. Church, it's what you were created for. So let me encourage you as I conclude this morning. He will not leave you to walk this journey alone. Like he has in his providence given you the journey that you have. And the purpose of your journey is to reflect his glory, to point people to his glory. But he promises you to give you everything you need to accomplish that purpose. It's what he did for Paul. Let me quickly highlight three provisions of God for Paul to accomplish this purpose. The first was people. God gave the Apostle Paul various people to encourage him in his journey. It began at the very beginning. First, he has, he has his buddies with him, Aristarchus and Luke, who are constantly probably encouraging him. Then we have his enemy, Julius, the centurion, his captor. You would think that Paul, that would not be a provision of God, but did you know that God actually provides enemies for you? To help you accomplish his purposes. That'll preach. I don't have time for that. But that will preach. Julius, his enemy, arrests him. But yet Julius had kindness towards him. Let him go to Sidon in verse 3. So that he could be cared for. So we have his friends. Luke, Aristarchus. We have the friends in Sidon. Look at verse Acts chapter 28, verse 13. In the port city of Petuli. We have Christian brothers and sisters that came and stayed with Paul for seven days. 
Look at Acts chapter 28, verse 15. As he nears Rome, he sees all of these friends who come 33 miles outside the city of Rome to join him, to walk with him the rest of the way. And on seeing them, we, we, Luke writes, Paul thanked God and took courage. Who are the people that you believe God has put in your life to encourage you in your journey? We all have them, don't we? Who are those people that are encouraging you, praying for you, reminding you of your purpose, reminding you that your difficulties are intended by God to bring him honor and to bring him glory? And if you don't have those people, may I invite you to let our church be that for you. The person sitting next to you, people in your grow group, don't hide your struggles. Don't hide your journey. We as the church are given to one another to encourage each other on this journey. Another question for you is, who are you God's provision for? that make sense? I think that made sense. Like God wants to gift you to other people who are walking on a journey. So who are you rising up and encouraging on a journey so they can bring glory to God? Second thing God provided was his promises. So God provided Paul with his, his people. He also provided him with promises. So we have to go back first to Acts chapter 23. If you want to flip with me, go ahead. Acts chapter 23, verse 11. This is, what, seven, eight chapters from where we are today? Acts chapter 23, verse 11. It says, The following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Consistently, God had been promising Paul, You're going to get to Rome. I have purpose for you in Rome. There's a destination in store. I'm getting you to this place. It was a promise of God. And then he does it again in Acts chapter 27. So again, flip back to our text. Acts 27, verse 23. An angel of the Lord stands before Paul and says, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. God continues to promise Paul about this destination. That there is an outcome. This journey isn't going to last forever. There's somewhere to head. Church, God speaks to us. Did you know that? God speaks to his people. And the primary way that God speaks to his people is through the word of God. Did you know that there are over 7,400 promises that God makes his people in scripture? 7,400. So let's be real about God's promises. The challenge isn't in finding his promises or in seeing his promises. The challenge is in reading his promises and realizing what I'm reading is totally contrary to what I'm experiencing. Right? Did that set in? The challenge is you see God promises that this journey ain't going to last forever, but you're still in the valley. You're still thinking, is he, is he true to his word? Is he ever going to fulfill this? The difficulty is when his promises don't match with our lived experience. So what do we do? Paul was given this promise sitting there on the boat. Hey, Paul, you're going to make it to Rome. And he's like, really? Look at my circumstances. How many times could Paul have questioned that promise? If I were Paul, I can be honest with you, hundreds. I'd be doubting, I would be struggling, and we do that all the time. Be honest with yourselves. You believe that God has spoken, you see in his word that he is speaking, but you're living this journey that is contrary to his spoken word. So what do we do? Let me just tell you, church, you're in really good company. God spoke to Abraham and Sarah about a promised son, but he left them barren for 25 years. God spoke to Joseph about a position of authority, but instead he lived as a slave and imprisoned. God spoke to Israel about a promised land, but instead they wandered in a wilderness for 40 years. God spoke to David about being a king, 
but instead he was a fugitive throughout the caves. God spoke to the people of Israel about a coming Messiah. But after the book of Malachi, he was silent about that for 400 years. That's the intertestamental period. This happens over and over and over and over. Is this not your story? God speaks. You see his promises. You, you want to believe his promises. But once again, they're contrary to the journey that you're on. Church, this is where faith comes in. This is why we live by faith and not by sight. Look at verse 25 of Acts 27. Paul says, I, I, the angel of the Lord visited me. He told me about this destination. So take heart, man. For I have faith in God. It will be exactly as I have been told. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Romans 4.20, talking about Abraham. Paul, Paul writes in Romans, no unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Let me give you a key to this journey. Abraham had this journey, but he did not grow, he did not waver concerning God's promise. He knew I'm going to get to this destination. Here's the secret. Abraham, even while he's walking, even in the fact that his promise is unfulfilled, he did what? Gave glory to God. In the midst of the journey, that's Romans 4.20. Look that one up. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Church, all of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. They will always find their fulfillment. You don't get to dictate the timing of that. We don't get to dictate the timing of God. So what are we responsible for? Leaning into his promises and letting them encourage us and build our faith as we walk on this journey, giving glory to God. Finally, and I'll give you one more. So God provided Paul with people. He provided him with promises. Finally, he provided him with power. All right, look at the end of our text. So this is the kind of the beginning of Acts chapter 28, mostly in, in verse 7. Towards the end of our text, God provided Paul with incredible power. In this situation, it was the power to heal. He healed this governor's this father. He, he healed all of the people of the island. In church, I believe God can heal. I do. I believe that God is not limited, that God can heal. But can I give you another power that God wants to provide you in the midst of the journey? This is straight from Scripture. It's the power of weakness. What an oxymoron, right? Sometimes that journey is just incredibly difficult so that you can grow in your awareness of how weak you are. Sometimes in God's providence, the journey is hard to make you weak. So that you stop relying on your own weakness and begin to rely on the power of God. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Paul was weak on his journey. A messenger of Satan had been given to Paul by God. No, I don't understand. Okay. Paul called it a thorn in his flesh. We don't know if it was a physical ailment, a spiritual burden. We don't know. But Paul begins to plead with God three times, take this away. I want to walk with you. I want to glorify you. Take this weakness away. And what did God tell him three times? My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul goes on to say, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He says, for when I am weak, that's when I'm truly strong. So let me just ask you honestly, does your journey and, and the walk that you're walking have you feeling weak, tired, overwhelmed? Man, that's a good thing. Because that's actually God's provision for you. God is providing weakness for you so that you can stop relying on your own strength and actually get into touch with the power of God. Because when you're weak, church, then you can be strong. God is glorious. 
He is of utmost worth and utmost value, and you are created to revolve and to live for his glory, whether you eat or drink, whether you reach an outcome or whether you're still on a journey in the destination, uh, towards a destination. But whether the journey, whether an outcome, your purpose in this moment, every day that you're breathing, is to bring him glory. And a couple of the ways that Paul did that is he witnessed to God's power and he witnessed to God's provision. So let me pray for us, and then we'll conclude this morning by singing a song of response. Father, thank you for the beauty of Scripture. Thank you for this intricate detail that seems so unnecessary from Luke, but it is so necessary for your purpose. To show us that it's not just an outcome that brings you glory, it's how we live in the midst of the journey. Thank you, God, that you are glorious and that you share your glory with no other, that you're O'Clyden, DK, all these other false little gods that we, just like the people in this text, tend to run to for comfort, for support, for answers, for strength. Thank you that you will get glory over them. Thank you that you are kind and patient to consistently redirect our attention from little G gods in our life to you who is most worthy of honor and praise and glory. God, I pray that you would put us in touch with our purpose. I pray that how we walk in this journey would bring you honor, would bring you glory, that would reflect your power, reflect your provision. Thank you that you don't leave us alone, that not only do you have this journey for us in your providence, but you promise to provide all that we need to accomplish your purpose. We thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.